Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Humans, the podcast. In today's episode, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Elizabeth Franklin. Elizabeth is an advocate for people impacted by cancer and is passionate about ensuring that patient voices are the North Star in healthcare decision and policymaking. Elizabeth has spent two decades as a nonprofit leader and has significant expertise in professional social work, research, and public policy. Elizabeth has previously worked at the George Washington University Cancer Institute, Prevent Cancer Foundation, and National Association of Social Workers. She earned a doctorate from the University of Maryland School of Social Work and her master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Elizabeth currently serves as president of the Cancer Support Community, where she's responsible for the organization's policy and research portfolios. The Cancer Support Community, one of my favorite cancer nonprofits, is the largest network of cancer support worldwide with 175 locations, including CSC and Gilded Club centers, hospital and clinic partnerships, and satellite locations that deliver over $50 million in free support and navigation services to patients and families. They offer everything from free support groups and counseling to education around nutrition, financing your treatment, clinical trials, yoga, and a helpline with all kinds of additional guidance. They also conduct cutting edge research on the emotional and psychological journey of cancer patients and advocate at all levels of government. As you'll hear, CSC has stepped up in some really incredible ways throughout COVID to support the cancer community and are just really an amazing resource to both patients and caregivers at large. In my conversation with Elizabeth, we discussed the current cancer landscape, innovations in the colorectal cancer space, the unique stigma surrounding colorectal and lung cancers, some words that harm and words that heal, how to move from disempowering conversations about death to empowering ones, the long-term needs of both patients and caregivers, and how to pivot in real time when maybe you've said the wrong thing to someone with cancer. And finally, she leaves us with some advice on how to advocate for our loved ones, both in DC and at home. She is an absolute powerhouse and someone I respect and admire so much. So without further ado, please enjoy Dr. Elizabeth Franklin. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Allie. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you and hear you. So good to see you. Um, I'd love to start off and just help our audience understand a little bit more about your connection to and passion for cancer advocacy. Absolutely. So I am an oncology social worker by training and background. So all of my degrees, I have a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in social work. And I actually got into oncology because of my mentor, who unfortunately I lost last year Um, in 2020, but she was an oncology social worker who felt very committed to the needs of people living with cancer, and she just sparked that passion in me. And I think that all of us will be touched by cancer at some point or another, whether, you know, whether it's our own cancer experience, a loved one, a friend, a family. Unfortunately, we've seen um, cancer rates continue to rise, although it is exciting that we've also seen innovative treatments and different ways to serve cancer patients. So, while there are some disturbing trends, and I know we're going to talk about colorectal cancer on this podcast, and, and that's an area where we're seeing some of those challenging trends, we're also seeing um, ways that patients are being able to treat not just the cancer, but also the quality of life issues and everything else that they struggle with. So um, very long story short, I have been working in cancer for about 15 years at this point, and I just feel incredibly fortunate that I get to advocate with and on behalf of who are dealing with this disease, which, as you know, personally, can be incredibly devastating. Yeah, I think that's a, um, I think there's some confusion around what's happening with cancer because we have the prevalence going up, um, but we have the mortality rate going down. And I was wondering if you see the prevalence increasing as actually somewhat a positive in the space in that it's indicating more testing and diagnoses. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into that. So we know that the number one Um, correlation with cancer, one of the leading risk factors, if you will, is age, right? And we're watching the population age. So the baby boomers are aging, which means we're just going to have more cases of cancer. So just that in and of itself is going to give us more cancer. But to your point, we have better screening mechanisms. We're able to catch cancer more often, which is a good thing, right? If we can catch 
let's say colorectal cancer through a colonoscopy at stage one or two versus metastatic colon cancer, that's a pretty significant difference in terms of outcomes. And so we're catching more cancer. So we're seeing that prevalence go up and it's a factor of the population aging as well as us catching cancer more often. Um, but we are also seeing that mortality rate drop. And that is because the government, um, pharmaceutical companies, a whole host of stakeholders have been able to invest in cancer care, right? So we're seeing incredibly innovative treatments. We've started to see um, scientists harnessing the power of our own immune systems. So it's not just the chemotherapy of 30 years ago, which people think of right. you know, just being incredibly um poisonous, right? Because it's attacking all of the cells in your body. And even though chemotherapy is still an option for many patients, there's also tons of new options for many cancers. And it's shown incredible promise, people living longer, people living with fewer side effects. So, so yes, we're seeing more cases, but we're doing a lot better with cancer than we ever have in the past. Well, that's amazing. All all things considered, <laughs> um, it's it's funny to talk about nothing within cancer is amazing. But um, as somebody who has obviously been through this with my own family, um, it is exciting to see. I actually, you know, I remember watching a fundraising event. I think it was through Stand Up to Cancer back in maybe like the mid 2000s. And they showed all these videos and um, they were talking with a lot of oncologists and they were saying the feeling in the space was that it, you know, it was it was like uh, that moment before a storm where they felt like it was about to rain in oncology and in a, you know, in a really positive and exciting way. And I remember being so energized and, you know, motivated by that at the time to support advocacy and fundraising. It was obviously relevant to me personally. And then of course my father passed away and I, in just full honesty, I was, it was painful to think about the progress that was so close because it wasn't there in time for him. And I kind of had to step away a little bit from just the actual advancements in the space, but now with time and space and a lot of healing on my end, um, it is really exciting to, to come back and look at colorectal cancer specifically and all of the exciting things that are on the horizon. So I'm just curious, you know, broadly and then specific to colorectal cancer, what would you, how would you describe the pulse right now in the community? Yeah, thanks, Allie. And thank you for sharing your story with me. I know we've talked about your dad and it's been such an important catalyst in your life that it's amazing to see what you've done, you know, I think in your dad's legacy and honor. So I think you should be incredibly proud of yourself and the work that you've done. But what you just described yeah. is something that I think about quite a bit and I call it the value of hope. Right. And mm -hmm. it's, it is, you know, one treatment might get a patient another year of life. And if you think about it on its face, um, a year of life is extraordinary, but it's not an extra 15 years. Right. But what if we could get that patient to the extra year of life and then there's another treatment and then mm -hmm. they get another mm -hmm. years and then there's another treatment. And so it's that, it's that value of hope that it's hard to quantify because it's not a math equation, right? It is not yeah. just, you know, I'm going to take drug A and I'm going to live another year and then I'll take drug B and I'll live another five years. None of it right. is that precise, but the value of it, you captured it so eloquently. It's sort of, when you said, it's hard for me to hear about the innovations because my dad did not get to take advantage of those innovations, but it is that hope that you can see today then, you know, ultimately we all want to see the day when cancer is cured, right? That's, I would love yeah, to not have a job. Absolutely. I, would, I would love to be out of a job, right? And I know right. we love to not make cards for people who are devastated by <laughs> Absolutely. Cancer, right? Um, so I, and I'll go back to my mentor, Betsy Clark, my first boss. She studied the value of hope and how incredibly important it is for anybody dealing with situations that are difficult, but because we work in cancer, I often think of it in this context, of course, but without hope, you can't do anything. You can't get out of bed in the morning. You can't host your podcast. If you didn't have the hope that you were making a difference, you wouldn't have your company. Thoughtful human wouldn't exist because you wouldn't have sure. hope. So all that to be said, um, you know, the innovation that we're seeing out there, whether in colorectal cancer or in other types of cancer, um, we're seeing people live longer. We're starting to, I hope, chip away at health disparities. We're paying attention to the fact that uh, Black Americans are getting and dying at higher rates for most cancers, including colorectal cancer, than their white counterparts. 
Um, we are starting to see younger people getting colorectal cancer, which is really distressing, but we're paying attention to it. And so, you know, if you can't measure it or if you're not paying attention to it, you're not going to have an impact. And the fact that we are measuring, paying attention to, really um, also taking the stigma and shame out of colorectal cancer. I don't know if your dad felt this during his journey, but a lot of people are ashamed. And to talk yeah. about, you know, whether it's, I think about this with colorectal cancer or some of the gynecological cancers, um, uh, cervical cancer, penile cancer, all of the, you know, HPV related cancers, people have a tough time talking about it. And there's mm -hmm. absolutely no reason why they should, because, mm -hmm. you know, they're dealing with a cancer just like any else and they deserve the support and services that are out there. Going back to what you were just saying, I, I also realize with deep gratitude that I'm actually the beneficiary of so much innovation and I am the, the living um, proof of the impact that that can make. My dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer when I was about 13 years old and lived for 10 years. Okay. And so talk about the things that were introduced along his journey that um, allowed me to have a parent from, you know, what a difference that makes to lose a parent at age 13 versus 22. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was <laughs> needed to be added because I do have obviously an awareness of that. Um, but looking forward, I'm really excited about well, Anna, <laughs> what that's going to mean for the next generation. Yeah, and I'll also put on my social work hat, Allie, losing a parent at 22 is not an easy thing, right? So even though your dad lived with metastatic colon cancer for 10 years, it's still your loss is so valid and it has informed your life in such a deep way, right? So it's awesome yeah. that, that he was able to live that long, but it's still devastating to lose a parent at any age, but especially in your early yeah. days. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, it is a unique little club that I'm going to talk more about at some point with Thoughtful Human, these kind of floating young adults that don't fall in this kind of kid category that get some support or in these adult categories that oftentimes find find more community than than the young adults. But anyway, you, you were bringing up shame. And I think that that's a huge part of colorectal cancer, specifically, I imagine cancer at large. It's something I'm really interested in and focusing on when it comes to colon related issues. Uh, everything from the actual vocabulary to why is it that we can talk about a lump in a breast, but we can't talk about bleeding rectally. And obviously it's just really, really uncomfortable for people. And I want to know how we fix that. How do we just normalize this conversation on a social level and make it not a big deal? I mean, there's just some people want to put a space between it. You know, I always talk about the, your yogurt lid. I'm like, I want my yogurt lid to, to say something about colorectal cancer, but it doesn't. And it never does because it's off-putting to people. Well, the reality is colorectal cancer is the second leading uh, cancer killer. So how do, what are, what are they doing differently in other areas of cancer advocacy that's working, which I don't want to knock. I always am really careful about that. It's sure. like the breast cancer community has done such an amazing job um, bringing celebration and, um, empowerment around it in a way that I really feel is lacking in the colorectal cancer community. Yeah, I think you're you absolutely correct. And I will start by saying the breast cancer community has done such an extraordinary job in marketing and communication and getting the word out there. But, you know, I'll take us back even further. It used to be the C word, right? Before any cancer. So the breast cancer community was the first community to really make a splash in terms of like, we're out here and it's pink ribbons and we're doing all of this work. And, and so they really got out into the world, what was important to them. Um, but I'll say that it has created, you know, and, and I don't feel this way personally, but an example, I was doing my dissertation and several uh, patients that I talked to would bring up, well, you know, I have this rare cancer, or I have colorectal cancer, or I have, you know, cancer that cervical cancer and people aren't singing it from the rooftops and it doesn't get as much attention and that's not fair to me right so I think a lot of people mm -hmm. feel exactly what you just expressed while being happy that breast cancer has a lot of attention they also want attention for their specific type of cancer and you know colorectal cancer is one of those that people are historically hesitant to talk about exactly what you just said 
I, you know, I don't want to talk about anal bleeding. I don't want to talk about anything having to do with that area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, when you asked me originally how I got into this and sort of where my passion came from, it's because I'm from Kentucky, where we have some of the leading cancer rates in the country, many of which are lung cancer related. So when we talk about stigma, I get incredibly frustrated by the conversations around lung cancer, right? Because it's so heavily stigmatized. And whether you smoked, whether you didn't smoke, whether you have a genetic mutation, whether you had a healthy diet or or a healthy weight, while those things are important, at the end of the day, no one deserves cancer, right? And I think everyone deserves support and access and they deserve to afford their treatment. And so I feel incredibly passionate about the issue of stigma because no one with cancer should be experiencing stigma. I haven't cracked the nut of how to fix that yet, <laughs> except for when someone tells me that they've had, you know, they know somebody with lung cancer, they know somebody with a cancer that has sort of a behavioral risk associated with it. And then they go, they immediately go into, but they didn't even smoke or, but they didn't do X, Y, or Z. And my response is, oh, I don't, I don't really care about that. Right. Like I, they're a human yeah. and I want them to have support. And so I think that yep. that's, you know, being gracious and open and supporting everyone. And I want, look, I want people to stop smoking. I want people to live healthier lifestyles because I want the cancer rate to go down. But I also want to support people once they do have cancer with deep humanity and love and everything that people deserve simply because they're, they're thoughtful humans. Right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's really important that you bring that up. I was actually really surprised to see some of the lung cancer rates. And uh, I think that's a testament to my education. I'm like, no, people don't, people don't use tobacco anymore. (laughs) We know that. And uh, I think I myself have, have had that idea of just like, well, the things that we know how how it's caused in many cases, certainly not all cases, there is this stigma. Um, And I think it's really important just to say that out loud that um, nobody deserves cancer and no one should be making any assumptions. And we should all, I think there's also this um, level of preparation. So Thoughtful Human is really addressing supporters of people who are dealing with these illnesses. And so I think on our end, um, there's a lot of awareness education training we can do on how to receive people talking about these things. I think it's really critical when I, when I think about the first barrier to talking about something like colorectal cancer, it's like, you know, the awareness, well, in order to be aware, you either have to be educated or you have to be able to share your symptoms out loud so that somebody else can, can help raise flags. Um, and we can't, we can't do that if people are reacting in a certain ways. So I think a huge part of the conversation just starts, you know, I I talk a lot about this with thoughtful human is how do we create the space and create an environment where, I mean, really simple things from a reaction on your face can be a stopping point for someone moving forward in these conversations. And being like, Oh, you're like, Ew, or just anything so slight that I think we all really need to be aware of the ways in which we are kind of putting people back in boxes all the time when it comes to this stuff. You know, it reminds me, I used to have a conversation with my mentor about, and we, we talked about this in terms of physicians, but it really could be anybody who's interacting with the cancer patients, but we talked about words that harm and words that heal, right? Mm. Um, and so take, for example, when you're diagnosing someone with cancer or when somebody is going through cancer treatment, a, a phrase like, there's nothing else we can do, mm. or you know, X percentage of people die from this disease at a point in time. And it's not to, I, I hate this term because I don't actually think that it's a thing. I was going to say, it's not to get false hope. I think that if someone has hope, it's by definition, it cannot be false. It's not to give people sort of false promises, right? And say like, you may not die or whatever, but there is a compassionate and thoughtful way to communicate with yeah. patients. And to your point, it's not making a face or, you know, I remember talking to a cancer survivor who was telling me about anal stenosis and, and had I responded back to her with, Oh my God, that sounds horrible. How do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. Right. It's, I want to hear more about that and tell me about your experience. And that sounds really, Mm -hmm. I can hear your voice if that's painful. What was that like? Right. It's that, I think at the heart of how we interact with anyone dealing with any difficult circumstance, but cancer is, is sort of an exemplar of what a difficult circumstance is. 
treat them with compassion. And I all, you know, I mm-hmm. also think you never know what people are dealing with. So yeah. don't shame people. Don't stigmatize things. You don't know how they got to the place they're at. And at this point, let's just be helpful and try to raise them up. And, you know, the work that you're doing to raise awareness around colorectal cancer is extraordinary because people don't know enough about it and they don't know how to prevent it. And, and when they get it, they don't feel that level of support. So there's so many different ways that we can be better humans towards one another. I think I always say it's our greatest opportunity and superpower to be able to create the space. Once you know that you can set people free in this way, obviously it doesn't cure cancer, but when you can really liberate people to be open about what they're experiencing, it's, it's really powerful. And it's something I didn't have the opportunity to do with my dad. I, I did, you know, to varying extents as a teenager with, you know, how you feeling today? You know, he would, you know, Oh, it's a day one, you know, that would be like how he would describe just his usual symptoms after a day one of chemo or whatever it was. But, um, I certainly wasn't able to understand from his perspective. And I think so much of that is entering the conversation with just the awareness of like, we're tabling our feelings. This has nothing to do with how I feel about anything related to colons or any of these symptoms. We're just processing someone else's experience. And like, if we can all look at it from that lens, we would all say, oh my gosh, that sounds so uncomfortable or painful. Or how are you feeling about that? Does that make you feel embarrassed? And let's talk about that. Uh, I think, I think there is such a big, big opportunity there. I'm curious if there's any other specific phrases like you were mentioning that you found really helpful or unhelpful for people in the community. Yeah, I think, um, and some of these are pretty uh, cliched, but you know, that everything happens for a reason or it's God's plan Mm -hmm. or, and this is Mm -hmm. whether you're first dealing with cancer or you're dealing with someone who is, who's died. Um, I, I also think the ways that we talk about death are really disempowering, right? And we have so many euphemisms for death versus yep. we're, we're so uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable talking about cancer, especially a certain subset of cancers. We're uncomfortable mm-hmm. talking about death and that prevents us from providing the kind of care, hospice care, palliative care, um, you know, having thoughtful conversations around death that it's, it's difficult for people then to engage. If you can't even have a conversation about it, how are you going to plan for it? And plan for it in a way that gives people dignity and allows them to have their wishes fulfilled and, and all those things. So I think um, the best thing that you can say to someone is, I don't know what you're going through. I can't, I, I can't possibly understand, um, but I'm here for you. And I'm willing to talk about anything that you want to talk about. And I'm willing to sit here in silence and hold your hand, whatever you want, I'm here for. And, you know, don't, ask people, I think one of the difficult things is saying like, if you need anything, just let me know. And then people disappear. Right. And it's like, you know, I think about you with your dad. It's like, I'm, I'm dealing with so many emotions and so many details. I can't tell you what I need. Bring a meal over, give Mm -hmm. me a gift card for something, offer to drive my dad to chemo or offer to do something, you mm-hmm. come up with a proactive solution because I'm dealing with so many emotions right now that I can't come up with my checklist of things that I need people to do. So absolutely, you know, be proactive and listen to what someone needs. And if they can't elaborate on what it is, then you help to fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it is consistency. And I talk about that across issues is like, I think so many of us, when we're in a vulnerable place, there's this huge trust issue, right? Somebody's going to reach out once and say they're going to do something. And then, you know, oh, let me know if you need help. And then you reach out for help and then they're busy. And you're like, you don't blame them. Of course they're busy, but then you're extra vulnerable and you're like, never mind. And you're, you know, starting to withdraw. And I've just noticed this dynamic personally and with others in my life. And I think there's this big opportunity to, you know, however redundant it might seem to like, you just got to keep checking in so that they have this trust that you really are ready to go. And like you said, with something specific, uh, that is helpful, but also I always try to give an out to people. So it's like, you know, I will be there. I'm going to drop off some food at five o'clock unless you don't feel like it today, you know? And make it really easy for you to say no to me, but otherwise I'm going to make this really low touch and very easy for you. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to answer the door. I'll just drop it off. We don't have to talk if you don't want to talk, right? Like follow their lead and everybody's different. Some people need touch. Some people need, um, you know, 
gifts is not the word I want to use, but like acts of service, right? Like bringing food and things like that. Some people need time to process. So it's important to understand what you're dealing with. And, um, you know, the, so there's sort of these two very separate um, time periods with something like cancer. When you announce that someone has cancer, people flock to you, right? They bring you Mm -hmm. food. They want to take Mm -hmm. care of you. They do everything possible, which is wonderful. People have the best intentions. But say a month passes by and people start to filter away, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not that immediate, you know, I'm dealing with cancer. I need help in the acute moment. So then you enter into the chronic phase and people go away, right? And so it it makes sense what you said. Just be there, being there, whether it's a text or a card, which is what is so awesome about your cancer series because you can send multiple cards, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to, to keep up over a certain time period. And I think the same thing happens when someone dies, right? It's an, it's an immediate rush of love and support. And then people slowly trickle away. And, you know, it's not that people can be around constantly, but I was just texting a friend who lost someone. And this was several weeks after the initial loss. And I said on a Sunday, like, I know this is the hardest time, you know, when mm-hmm. the casseroles stop coming, and the flowers stop mm-hmm. coming, and you're alone with your thoughts. And I'm here for you, right? If you want to talk, mm-hmm. if you want to scream, if you want to curse out loud, I'm here for you. And if not, that's fine too. But I just want to recognize that I'm assuming you're having a difficult time. And she said, yeah, it's hard when, when things stop coming yeah. and it stops being such an event. Yeah. You, you almost have this little, you know, you have this little shield for a little while where people aren't expecting things from you and people are like, oh, that's why so-and-so is responding X, Y, Z or, or not responding, whatever it may be. And then it's almost like it gets wiped away. It's like, what's wrong? And you're like, what's wrong? What do you mean? What's wrong? You know, for me, it was very present for, for the first couple of years. And I didn't, you know, especially looking back, there's no way anybody could have known. And I didn't expect anybody to know what to do. I what I didn't even know what I wanted or was asking for. Uh, but I do think just the, that awareness and sensitivity and, and freeing people from this idea that you can bring it back up. And again, in these ways where of course, leave space if people don't want to talk about, about it, but as simple as do you want to talk about it? Saying people's saying your loved one's names who you may have lost has been a I noticed everyone just started tiptoeing around it and like being so concerned to trigger me in different ways. And I'm like, it is way more weird to me that we're all acting like this person didn't exist. And I can't believe it. I was like, does anybody remember? Is this just me? And it gets really isolating. So I think for me, one of the things I try to do for people now, you know, it's still hard. I still don't know what to say when people lose people, especially when it's very fresh. Um, but give people the opportunity. Do you want to tell me about your mom? Do you want to tell me about whoever it was that you lost? And it can be really beautiful to, to have someone, you know, relive some of the detail. Like no one's asking that kind of thing. And I think that can be really hard and really sad and a really healing part of the process. Absolutely. Tell me a story about them. When was like, what was the last time you guys laughed together? Or, you know, just tell me your favorite memory of that person because it is very, um, I don't know exactly what word that I want to use for this. Disempowering is, is what came to mind first, but it's very sort of disheartening to feel like people, that person said, so we don't have to talk about them anymore. And it's not because you're uncomfortable as the person who's lost someone. It's because the vast majority of people are uncomfortable with death. Just like the vast yep. majority of people are uncomfortable yep. with cancer, right? Because they don't know what to say and they're afraid they're going to say something wrong. And even if you do say something quote unquote wrong, like if someone said to me, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, that would make me cringe. Um, but they could also say, I saw that look on your face. It doesn't seem like that really resonated with you. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I loved, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I'm here for you. No matter what you need, just let me know. I think that's so important. I think even just modeling that conversation right there, like it seems like in real time that didn't resonate with you. Let's try again. Or can you tell me why? Or if, you know, maybe they don't want to walk through why, like, let's pick this conversation back up later. Not, it's not over because of this discomfort or awkward exchange or me missing one time. Um, but just, yeah. Empowering people to, um, 
to own that in the moment and, and navigate through with whoever it is that they're, that they're going through it with. I think uh, also an important consideration that I always tell people, it's like, it is a lot. What we're talking about is asking you to um, expend a lot of emotional energy, right? And you can't do that for everyone. So I always try to encourage people, you know, you aren't going to be doing this for every acquaintance in your life that is impacted by cancer in some way, but really who are the core people in your life that you can show up for and then really try to, to do these things we're talking about. Yeah. And don't make assumptions, right? Like it's, and I think it's really important that you say like, you don't have to be the comforter to everyone who in, in any aspect of your life who has, you know, lost someone to cancer. But I think, um, understanding people's cultural traditions, understanding people's religious traditions, mm-hmm. understanding people's um, family structure, the ways in which, you know, because the, I find it very um, troubling to be told everything happens for a reason or it's all God's plan. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone else will be very comforted by that, right? You have to know the person to know. And if, but don't make assumptions. To say, you know, I I know that this is hard. I can't possibly know the exact situation, but I know how difficult it is to lose someone. And also recognizing, again, kind of flipping into social work mode, also recognizing yeah. that losing a loved one, regardless of if it's your father and you're super close to them or a spouse, or if it's someone, you know, a coworker or someone that you were friendly with, it's a trauma, right? It's a mm-hmm. traumatic situation which people have to figure out how to navigate. And we're not good as a society in terms of navigating trauma because we don't hold space for people to live through trauma. So mm-hmm. um, it's really tough. It's really tough. And I think if we had more compassion, less judgment, we'd be in a much better place in terms of cancer and any other chronic illness or challenging situation that humans go through. I think a lot of people don't understand if you haven't been there, what it actually means to lose someone of cancer. We think, I don't know about you and you're obviously much deeper in the space. So I'm sure that your answer to this would be different, but my uh, concept from people that I talk to is that they think, you know, it's chemotherapy and radiation sometimes, and then you just die sometimes. Right. Uh, they don't realize when you're talking about the extent of trauma for families that in a lot of cases, certainly in my case, I mean, we literally sat there with my dad in my house and had to watch him slowly and very painfully die. And without getting too, too sad and morbid here, I mean, it is traumatic. And I don't think people, they don't talk about what happens in the end. And um, it's a really, I, I think another opportunity for people to really understand uh, what that what that looks like and why there are such long lasting impacts for people who have really closely been a caregiver for somebody who's passed of cancer. Right. And there's there's different layers to the trauma. There's the trauma of the initial reaction to somebody getting cancer. There's the trauma of watching them get sick or sicker. And whether that is um, symptoms and side effects, like right, like if if your dad's going through chemo and he's it's making him super sick, watching that, right? And then it's yeah. the trauma of um, the treatment's not working. And so now right. we have to start planning right. for the end of life. And it's the trauma of watching him suffer. And, you know, I think that you're absolutely correct. Many people don't understand that dying from not all, but many cancers is painful and it is physically grueling. And as a family member, even if the loved one is, you know, receiving appropriate palliative care and hospice care and they're not necessarily feeling it as much, it's really devastating as a family member watch that right so that's your sort of psychic trauma of witnessing it and then after the person dies all of the things that you have to do as a result right if you were responsible whether you're the spouse or the parent or the living child all of the things you know the the paperwork hell that you go through of mm-hmm. what were dad's passwords because we've got to figure out you know how to do all these things all of those pieces are traumatic and because we're not good at dealing with emotions and trauma as a society, not to get too macro about this, yeah. it just creates a situation that makes things so much harder than if we could sit down and have a conversation and say, again, going back to my my mentor, mentor Betsy, we used to say, what does a good death look like to you? Every cancer mm. patient should have that, that question asked. Mm. What is a good death? And people will look at you like you're nuts. Like, what do you mean a good death? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be 
on a ventilator. I don't want to experience pain. Um, if I can have access to have death with dignity and, um, you know, work with a doctor to decide when I'm going to die, that's my ideal. Or I want to have my pastor there or whatever it looks like. What does a good death look like? Mm-hmm. If we could have those conversations proactively, people, I think, would have such more elegant, dignified deaths than we allow them to have right now because we're scared of yep. having conversations. I think there's a huge, huge part there too in preparing people um, to even understand the point at which you may or may not be able to have those conversations anymore. I think that was a huge learning. And like, if I can give one major takeaway to other people, I would, I would say, you know, talk to your doctors, um, and your hospice team at at what point is this medication is the illness itself going to make it so that we can't have these conversations because that happened really fast for us. And it was too late. There was no talking about anything. Um, because we, of course, our priority was keeping my father comfortable and out of pain, but we were, we were really unprepared. And I think like you're saying, absolutely could have done a lot more to, um, to ensure that things went how, how he wanted them to. And I mean, there's a huge opportunity to also, um, you know, I guess minimize some of the trauma in being able to have some of those really important conversations with people that you love. I was going to say, so, figuring out what you want to say to them, because you, if yeah. you knew, you know, six weeks out from your father's death, and I'm just picking that, that time frame mm-hmm. randomly, but six weeks out that the next day he would, he could no longer be commutative or he was in so much pain that you were going to have to put him on a morphine drip that would, you know, he'd basically be asleep all the time. You would know what you could then say to him on Absolutely. that day, right? And if we could have those conversations, because it's really hard to look in your loved one's eyes and say, like, tomorrow, I know, I know that this is the last conversation we're going to have. And I want to tell you how much I love you. And I want to tell you what I regret. And I want to tell you what my hopes and dreams are to carry on your legacy. It's a really hard conversation to have. But if you can plan things out, and nothing's perfect, you're never going to be able to plan things perfectly. But if we could have those conversations about death is not tomorrow, but it's coming. And there are things that we need to talk about and things that I want to say to you. And that's so powerful. Whenever I talk to a social worker or somebody Mm -hmm. who works on hospice, every single one of them says to me, it is such an honor to be there with somebody in the last days of their life because you get to witness, you get to see the sharing of their life, you get to see their loved ones to experience the pain that they go through, but hold space for them. I just think it's one of the most beautiful fields of practice and work that can be done because people are so afraid of death and mm-hmm. so, you know, hesitant to, to bear witness to it when in actuality, mm-hmm. we are all going to have to bear witness to death, our loved ones and our own. So it's one thing that it's sort of like taxes. You better get comfortable with this <laughs> because you're going to have to deal with it. And, and the rejection of it is so intense. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, I think and, and interesting to look at, you know, across cultures and just how ours is just so in denial. Right. And like you're saying, we, we, we can't sit with it. And that's why I think people don't approach these conversations so often is they're overwhelmed. They're like, well, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this, and it's going to be bad. And then it's still going to be bad. And then there's nothing to say. So we can't even start this conversation because there's nowhere to go with it. And I think that's, I think that's really common, but I think it's really backwards. Absolutely. You want, you want, you know, I don't think that complete closure is possible for almost anybody, but you want to look back and say, well, I don't have any regrets because I told my dad how much I loved him and that I would have fond thoughts of him moving forward. And no, relationships aren't perfect too. People may be dying that you have a super complicated, difficult relationship Mm, that have harmed you in your life, right? Mm -hmm. But you can control the way that you interact with them. And for me, if if someone died that I had a complicated relationship with, but I knew that I could say, you know, you're loved and Mm -hmm. I don't want to watch you suffer, then Mm -hmm. I could be happy with that, right? And it's that sense of some closure, I think is important. Yeah. And we're talking a lot about closure on, on our end, on the family supporter side of things, but also, you know, I think 
it was a huge missed opportunity for, for my dad, not being able to say what he wanted to say and, um, you know, allowing people to, I think there's this interesting, um, struggle between this idea of survivorship and hope and an idea of preparation and being realistic. And we didn't, we couldn't find that balance, right? My dad was unique in that he had cancer for 10 years. So it was something we kind of just did. It was a part of our family's lifestyle. So it wasn't quite clear to us when we were taking a final turn. Um, but even so, you know, I, I think his positive attitude and hope carried him very far in his journey. I also wonder if there was any point where it became a burden, where he felt like we couldn't have conversations about death because there was just this assumption of survivorship, right? And so, I mean, it's a question that I'm that I'm left with, and that I think is important for people to think about for their loved ones as well. Um, I feel like I keep going back to my mentor, but she had such a, a pivotal and powerful um, impact on my life. She used to call it the changing kaleidoscope of hope. And for cancer mm. patients, you know, the day you're diagnosed, you hope for a cure. And then a year down the road, when it becomes metastatic, you hope for a good quality of life and living as long as possible. And when you're facing death, you pivot and you hope for, a, you know, no pain or being able to tell my loved ones that I love them. Right. So I, I like to think about it in that way that yeah. hopes evolve, right. It's not always just, I don't want cancer. Like, why did I get this? I, this is not how I want my life to be. At some point, you know, a lot of people evolve through that and start thinking about what their hopes are. I don't want to leave my family in debt because I went mm. through a ton of cancer treatment that ultimately, you know, this is something that a lot of people struggle with. I felt pressure to keep surviving and therefore I spent all of our money and I got really mm. sick and I feel like I put people through the emotional ringer when, you know, I could take a step back and say, guys, I want to stop treatment and I want to enter palliative care and I just want a little bit of peace in my life. And honoring people's changing hopes like that, I think is incredibly important. Mm. That's a really, I, I've never thought of it that way. It's a really interesting way to look at it for sure. So we've, we've talked a lot about um, barriers in communication around cancer and colorectal cancer. I am curious a little bit um, your experience and feedback on barriers around the other parts of this process, around testing, diagnosis, treatment, um, and getting mental health support in general. I know that's, that's loaded, but, um, you know, for colorectal cancer specifically, it's, it's one of the more slow growing cancers. There is a lot of opportunity if you are able to catch it in early stages. And unlike a lot of other types of cancers, we have some great tests. You can get a colonoscopy, but there, in spite of that, there still seems to be a fair amount of resistance. So what do you see and why do you think that might be? The good part about colorectal cancer, like you said, is there is a screening mechanism, right? So whether it's colonoscopy or a test like Cologuard that you um, take a stool sample and send in the mail, if, if it's an appropriate option for you, or we're starting to see these really interesting um, multi-cancer early detection tests, which are, which are blood-based tests. And through a test of your blood, you, it actually points to the potential for you to have cancer, right? Because the circulating um, DNA in your blood will show whether or not you could have cancer. So we're seeing all these really interesting ways to um, test for, for colorectal cancer and other cancers, right? Um, it's a much better scenario than, let's say, pancreatic cancer, which is really hard to catch, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And there's no screening tool for it. But we're, the science is getting us there with these blood-based tests. We're going to start to see an elevation, especially of those um, cancers that you couldn't test for before. But show me one person who enjoys their colonoscopy and I will be shocked, right? It's still not a fun process, but it's so incredibly important. And we're actually seeing this experiment in real time with COVID because the screening rates have dropped precipitously in, during the pandemic. Because not only do people not love going to get a mammogram, getting a colonoscopy, um, for smokers, their lungs, CT scan, these things aren't fun, right? And so add on top of that, the pandemic, we've watched a precipitous drop in screenings. And so 
what is that going to mean down the road? We're going to see a huge swell of people mm-hmm. presenting with more advanced cancers, right? So whereas mm-hmm. you might catch your stage two cancer, perhaps when you come in to get your colonoscopy, it could be stage four. And that's a worst case scenario, but I'm very concerned about that because we watched at the height of the pandemic, numbers like 90% down of mm-hmm. colonoscopies and mammograms and things mm-hmm. like that. So I hope that we learn from the pandemic the importance of screening and the luxury that some cancers do have screening tests, right? That, that you can potentially catch colorectal cancer earlier. We also know about if you have a family history of the disease, Allie, I hope that you're getting genetic testing if you haven't already. Um, if you have a family history of the disease, you should know your family history. Um, and then there are certain ways to prevent. It's not always possible, but there's certain behaviors that you can engage in that could prevent cancer. We know that eating a diet rich in red meat could potentially give you a higher risk of colon cancer. And again, I don't want to shame anybody, right? I, I, I don't want anybody to get cancer, but there are some things that we know that could reduce the risk or help you mm-hmm. catch it earlier. And so, and the science is just, it has exploded over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, I think about sort of the, the treatment regimens that people were dealing with 30 years ago are so wildly different in many cases than they are today and how quickly it's progressing because we've made significant investments in the study of cancer. And so it, there is a bright future ahead in terms of the treatment of colorectal cancer and the more precise testing and screening for it. Um, but it still requires action on the part of the individual and that action can be tough to take. To, and for a variety of behavioral health reasons, it's it can be tough to get somebody in the door to take that test. Yeah, I had my first colonoscopy last year, right before COVID, and I talked. Uh, I interviewed another woman who um, had ulcerative colitis, and we talked a little bit about our colonoscopies. Um, what I think is so frustrating about it. Obviously, yes, it isn't a very active process. It's not, you're not just given a prick, like you got to clear that thing out yeah. and it's got to be really crystal clear. And that takes some effort and it can be unpleasant. But what I'm really wondering for uh, colonoscopies and in general, is just how do we give weight to a negative test? How do we give weight to prevention? How do we measure and make that more sexy (laughs) in a way that excites people and makes them hopeful. And it's almost like a, I'm going to be really careful here. It's not disappointing to get negative test result, but it's like, oh, what a hassle for nothing. It seems is the culture, right? Um, Even with COVID, it's like, if we could just only uh, make people understand what they are avoiding and the value of prevention and, you know, I talk a lot about the specifics of my dad's condition because you would never say that a colonoscopy was a hassle if you understood what you could be preventing. Uh, As a marketer myself and for you in in terms of advocacy, I mean, what do you think you can do about that? You know, even just looking at the general um, prevalence versus declining mortality rate, how do we get people wrapping their head around that and activate people. We need a culture of prevention, which we, and I'm, you know, I'll only talk about this in terms of our culture within the United States. We absolutely do not have a culture of prevention in a variety of ways, right? Like we make it difficult for people to have access and to be able to afford healthcare in the first place. Let's start foundationally, right? So many people, I am so fortunate that I have good health insurance and if, and when I need a colonoscopy, I can go get one. I have to take the step to do it, but I can go get one, right? Um, many people don't have that luxury. So let's start there. If you're of a lower socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. if you don't have health insurance coverage, you know, that's sort of step one in terms of prevention. Um, step two is knowledge. We do a terrible job of educating people about cancer in this country. You know, I think prevention is one of the hardest things to do from a cancer context because people aren't thinking about it until it hits them in the face, right? Like I would be willing to bet as a 14, 13 year old, you had never thought about colorectal cancer before your dad got colorectal cancer, no. right? Um, in a single second. Exactly. We're not teaching about it in schools. You know, I think people understand breast cancer because of the marketing has been so extraordinary, mm-hmm. but for by and large, people don't understand cancer. Um, and then the ways in which we incentivize things does not lead to prevention. And I mean that in a variety of ways. So 
we know that there are subsidies for people to get cheaper food, right? It's cheaper to eat a thousand mm-hmm. calories of McDonald's than it is to eat a thousand calories of fruits and vegetables, right? Mm-hmm. And you also, to take it back to um, social determinants of health, for folks who are living in neighborhoods where they don't have fresh fruits and vegetables, or it's easier to, to buy and consume a soda than it is water, or um, you can't walk to an exercise facility because either it doesn't exist closely or it's too expensive or the walk there is dangerous, right? There's all of these compounding factors that prevent many people from being able to get cancer. And then layer on top of that, the complex behavioral health issues that enter in cancer prevention, right? If it were easy for everyone to eat perfectly, right? Like eat a, eat a very healthy diet to maintain a healthy weight, to maintain a healthy um, psychosocial regimen, right? Like get therapy and all of these things, you would all be doing it. It's not easy. You know, Mm -hmm. there are so many reasons why people don't do it. So you layer all these things on top of each other. And then from a policy level, which, you know, is is my background, we don't like to pay for prevention. You know, if you're talking about the federal government, they will pay for something within the next 10 years or look at what it's going to cost within the next 10 years. But if we're going to benefit from cost savings 20 years down the road, forget it. That's not our problem today, right? Right. So we don't have a culture of prevention, which then if you look at the quote unquote personal failings of people who don't prevent cancer, is it really a personal failing or is it a cultural failing? Right. I think it's the latter. Absolutely. It's very frustrating. Um, and, and there are huge, huge disparities. I was looking at some of the data this morning and, you know, I think it's 70% of cancer fatalities in the world are in, um, mid to low income countries and, um, and environments. And so it's absolutely a question of policy. And I'm, I'm wondering what you see as today, the biggest, the biggest challenges and opportunity there and how me, the lay person and anybody else, you know, can, can really, you know, effectively get involved. Yeah, you know, Ali, we met through uh, my organization, the Cancer Support Community, and you've been such an incredible partner getting out CSE information to to your customers and your um, group of folks who are enjoying your cards. Um, there are so many different ways to get involved, and CSE is, is one patient advocacy organization. We cover um, what we call pan tumor or all cancers, right? So you can get engaged. You can take action on policy. You can take action in research. I think it's so incredibly important what you're doing, which is making your voice heard. If everyone who experienced cancer did that, we could make even bigger changes, right? We've seen huge sweeping changes over the last, like I said, 20 to 30 years, but people are still dying unnecessarily. People are still dying painfully. People are still dying from a lack of access and affordability until all of those things are fixed. We haven't done our job. Like I said, I'm always working to put myself out of a job. If there's no cancer tomorrow, that's great. I'll go do mm-hmm. something totally different. Um, mm-hmm. But there's lots of ways to make your voice heard. And you don't, you know, you use the term lay person, which I think is really important. I think about this every day in my job. Um, going up to Capitol Hill can be a little bit scary for most people or going to your state legislature or going and, you know, thinking about going to your city council and testifying or, or whatever it is. It's not. And you have every right as an individual to make your voice heard and to speak out about what you're passionate about. And so people like me who get paid to support folks who are doing this, let's talk. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. how to best support you. Let's arm you with the grassroots tools necessary to make your voice heard. Because I firmly believe that you, and I'll just talk about your case in particular, as a cancer caregiver and as a child of someone who died from cancer, you know way more about that experience than the average member of Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Because you lived through it and you know what, if you're talking about, let's say there's a piece of legislation on how to better support cancer caregivers, that's your life and that's your experience. And you have every right to petition the government as the constitution would say for a redress of grievances. In other words, if something's not working, you have a right to go make your voice heard and try to make it work better. And for those of us who've lived in the cancer world, who've lost people to cancer, who've been through this experience, you know way more than people who have not been through this experience. And I personally, and I think this as a social worker, but I would also say this to anybody in this field, you have a responsibility to do it, right? Mm-hmm. I think as a human being, you have a responsibility to try to make the world a little bit better. 
And if we can influence policy to better support people impacted by cancer, then we've done our part. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to talk with you more about that at a later time about um, me specifically and how I can get more involved for, for people who might not be ready to march on Capitol Hill. Well, that's, can I even not say that? <laughs> um, ooh, for well, people who aren't visit Capitol Hill and make an answer. <laughs> yeah. For people who aren't quite prepared to physically and peacefully visit Capitol Hill, um, are is there any um, legislation or specific projects right now you're working on that people can donate to or otherwise vote for or support that we can shout out? Yeah, absolutely. There's dozens of ways to make your voice heard and, and that don't include peacefully coming to DC. <laughs> um, you know, I think exactly what you're doing, Allie, having a podcast, telling your story, even if it's just talking to your friends and family about your story. Um, donating to organizations, and that's it's a plug, but it's not why I came on the podcast, but donating to organizations like the Cancer Support Community that are providing services. We provide over $50 million in free services to cancer patients every year. So you can talk to a social worker, go to a support group, a cooking class, nutrition, yoga, um, general education. We're providing all these services for anybody impacted by cancer totally for free. And so you know, whether it is a donation, a social media post, making your voice heard, um, openly back to the beginning of our conversation, openly talking about death in a way that encourages other people to openly talk about death, openly you saying, um, my dad died of, of colorectal cancer and here were his symptoms. And they were really scary, but it's important to understand what those were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, handling and broaching the tough topics and making them public is an extraordinary way to advocate, telling your story, making your voice heard. Um, and for those people who do want to come to DC, just sign up with Cancer Support Community and, and we'll work together to make that happen. Amazing. Um, I am totally into direct and shameless plugs when it comes to donating to <laughs> worthy organizations. Um, it's why I've loved working with you and it's why we put you in all of our card bundles and all of our programs wherever we can. Um, the more, the more we can direct people to your free services and the more we can get people to donate to them, uh, the better. You're amazing. So. Thank you. And I'll say, I've been super proud of CSC over the pandemic, whereas we used to see hundreds of thousands of people in person that could no longer happen during the pandemic. And so our affiliate network of 175 locations across the country flipped virtually overnight to provide services entirely virtually. So Zoom's uh, support groups, and they've done such incredible things like went and dropped off gift baskets at their members' homes, or if they had an arts and crafts class, they went and dropped off everything that they would need to participate so that when they got on Zoom, they had everything that they needed. One of our executive directors, um, he was actually, he started right before the pandemic. And so he didn't have an opportunity to meet a lot of the members. And so he did this like drive by like, hi, I'm Elizabeth. It's nice to meet you from a socially distanced way. So people could stay in their cars and meet him. And the the extent to which the cancer support community has really bent over backwards to make sure that people who are already dealing with the burden of cancer and the challenges that come along with cancer, when you put on top of that COVID, and we've been doing some research that has shown people are terrified, people are scared of catching the disease, they're mm-hmm. scared to of catching COVID, they're scared to go into the doctor um, for their cancer treatment, all of the, they're, they're scared to pay and access their prescriptions, all of these things are compounding. And so we did everything we possibly could over the last year to better support them. And I'm just extraordinarily proud we opened up our helpline from five days a week to seven days a week. Our um, one example of a data point to really illustrate the, the point is our financial counselor calls have gone up 300%. Oh, wow. In to everything else, people are getting laid off. People are, you know, mm-hmm. having challenges. We've raised money to give people um, gift cards to pay for their rent or anything else they're dealing with. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's a shameless bug, then I'm okay with it because it's an extraordinary <laughs> organization. We love it. We love it. We love you. We love the cancer support community. Thank you so much for coming on and being so open with me and talking through all kinds of difficult, scary things. I really appreciate it. And I think just your breadth of experience and your care for these issues and conversations with your background is just so important. And so thank you so much. Of 
course. And we love you, Allie. And thank you for all the work that you are doing. And we look forward to continuing our partnership together. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you or someone you know has navigated conversations around colorectal cancer or other colon-related illnesses, let us know. We'd love to hear what has or hasn't been helpful for you and always welcome your feedback at hello at thoughtfulhuman.co. If you'd like to follow along in our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at thoughtfulhuman. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. As a reminder, this podcast is not intended to serve as or replace professional health or mental health advice. If you or someone you know needs medical or psychological support related to cancer, please visit cancersupportcommunity.org. And for a month of free online therapy from a licensed therapist, you can also check out betterhelp.com slash thoughtfulhuman.